Hello, and welcome to the Turkish History Podcast. Episode 11, The Day of Thirst. So for the past two episodes, we jumped both back in time and thousands of miles away. We covered the life of Muhammad, the rise of Islam, and the civil wars within the new Muslim community, the Ummah. We ended with the establishment of the Umayyad Caliphate, the caliphate that would lead the armies of Islam into Central Asia. Now it is time to return to the subjects of our story, that is to the Turks. But our last episode on the Turks focused on the Second Khanate, which existed far to the east, in the lands of the former Eastern Gökturk Khanate. It's been a while since we discussed what's been happening in the lands of the old Western Khanate, the lands that are about to be invaded by the Umayyads. So I'm going to start by doing a rundown of what's been going on in the lands of Central Asia after the fall of the Western Khanate in the late 650s, roughly the same time that Ali's struggles with Aisha and Muawiyah were beginning. You might also want to re-listen to episodes 7 and 8 as a refresher. Okay, so as we discussed in episode 7, after the Tang armies crushed the last Ashina Khan of the Western Khanate in 658, The Tang Protectorate General to pacify the West had to figure out what to do with the lands of the Western Khanate. Now, the Tang did not really have the ability or the inclination to truly directly administer these lands, which were just so far from the heartland in China. So instead, they began setting up puppet Ashina Khans to administer various parts of the lands of the former Western Khanate that lay closer to China the areas just to the north and the west of the Tian Shan Mountains in what is today Kyrgyzstan, southeastern Kazakhstan, and eastern Uzbekistan. And the Tang did not want to recognize just one Khan. They wanted to divide the lands of the former Khanate, and therefore they appointed multiple Khans. Now these puppet Khans were still appointed in the same ceremonies that the Ashina clan had always used, and there were even sometimes Kurultais called to appoint them. But they owed their throne to the Tang, and relied on Tang money, recognition, and most importantly, Tang troops to stay on their thrones. The appointment of these puppet Khans was not universally popular or accepted on the steppe, and the Basmils, the Karluks, and others proclaimed their own Yabgus to resist Tang overlordship. Additionally, within their own tribes, the Ashna puppet Khans were not universally popular. Then, as we discussed in episode 8, Tang authority weakened during the reign of Empress Wu. The Tang state fell into political crisis, and its focus turned inwards. It was no longer able to effectively assert its authority across the Tian Shan. The Tang were no longer able to prop up all of their puppet cons. Central Asia was just too far away and too low down the list of priorities for the Tang, and the troops and money were needed closer to home. This loss of Tang support fatally weakened some of the Ashina puppet khans. Even on the Chinese side of the Tian Shan, the great protectorate general to pacify the West was weakened and came under attack by the Tibetans and the young Uyghur Khanate, undermining Tang authority across Inner Asia and even in Western China. As the Tang lost their ability to prop up their puppet khans in 699, a man named Uch Elig, the Tarkhan, or Grand Vizier, of one of the deeply unpopular Ashina puppet Khans rebelled against his nominal overlord and forced him to flee into exile in Tang, China. Now, Uch Elig was the leader of the Dolu faction of the An Ok, that is the senior and eastern wing of the old Ten Arrows of the old Gökturk Khanate. Uch Elig then proclaimed himself Khan and established the Turgesh Khanate, around the northern valleys of the Tian Shan, close to the city of Suyab, near today's Bishkek. Likely, though we cannot be sure, each of the tribes of the Dolu faction, that is each of the five arrows, came to take on the name of a color, but we know only two, the yellow Turgesh and the black Turgesh. Most probably these are directional names. You see, in lieu of proper names for the cardinal directions, Old Turkish used colors. Black for north, white for west, yellow for east, and blue for south. Incidentally, as a side note, that's where Karadeniz, or Black Sea, comes from. It's the sea to the north of the Anatolian Plateau, so it's the Black Sea. And in Turkish, the Aegean is Akdeniz, that is the White Sea, because it's to the west of the Anatolian Plateau. Now, Uch Elig was a member of the Yellow, or Eastern Turgesh. After deposing the last Ashina Khan, Uch Elig also received Tang recognition, 
though the Tang also kept an Ashina puppet Khan in their back pocket as an insurance policy. As we discussed at length in episode 8, the Turgesh under Uch Elig then went to war with the second Khanate and were soundly defeated at the Battle of Bolchu, and Uch Elig's own son and chosen heir was killed. But the Turgesh were not destroyed, and instead they became a vassal of the second Khanate, which is where we left them in episode 8. Now, crucially to our story, to the south of all of this, as the Gök Turk state collapsed, the city states of Sogdiana broke free of Turkish rule, and entirely free of steppe rule. For the first time in 75 years, there was no great steppe overlord. The political system that had bound these city-states to the Turkish Khanate had also kept them disunited from each other. Each city-state had a direct relationship with the Turkish Khanate. They had not formed a union among themselves. So as the Turkish Khanate's political structure collapsed, the city-states became independent, but remained disunited, a patchwork of Sogdian petty kingdoms. Crucially important for these Silk Road city-states, the political dislocation across Eurasia had decimated the Silk Road trade. Think about what's happened on either side of the Silk Road during the early 7th century. In 618, the Sui dynasty collapses, and China enters a five or so year period of civil war from which the Tang emerge. From 602 to 628, Rome and Persia are engaged in a devastating war. In 636, the Roman Empire loses at Yarmouk. By 642, the Sassanid Empire has fallen, and the state that has recently united the Middle East falls into a civil war from 656 until 661, and then another civil war from 680 to 692. Meanwhile, the state that had governed the Silk Road city-states and had ensured peace across the steppe, peace that merchants needed to safely travel from city to city, had collapsed by 660. This is not a good environment for transcontinental caravan trade, either from a supply-demand perspective or a personal safety perspective. So trade on the Silk Road declined, and these Sogdian city-states were both disunited and suffering an economic crisis. And so these Sogdian city-states, now small petty kingdoms, ruling their city and its surrounding hinterlands, quickly fell into war with each other. To fight these wars, they mostly used Turkish troops, small bands, remnants of the great Gökturk, who they now had to pay tribute to. And they also began looking for powerful allies to assist them in these wars. The small local bands and tribes of Turks, the second Turkish Khanate in the east, the Turgesh to the north, the Tang far to the east, and increasingly, to the strange Arab newcomers from the south. So this was the situation that the Arab armies met after they digested the mighty Sassanid state. They stood as lords of Iran and looked out across the weak and disunited steppe world, a steppe world in chaos after the recent collapse of the former Gökturk Khanate. Now the first Arab advances into Central Asia were tentative. Having conquered the Sassanid dynasty of Iran with astonishing speed, the Arabs were focused at first on consolidating their impossible initial victories. Some limited advances were made into Transoxiana under the reign of Umar in the late 640s, across the Amudarya, also called the River Oxus, which, remember, is the traditional dividing line between Iran and Central Asia. But these limited advances were all reversed during the First Fitna. After the First Fitna, during Muawiyah's reign, small advances were made again. Under his reign, the Arabs were able to establish control over Merv in Khorasan, and settle 50,000 Arab colonist families in the region, just south of the Amudarya. This built a reserve of manpower and supplies that meant that even during the Second Fitna, while the state could not advance, it did not lose its control of Khorasan and Balkh, and Merv would act as a launchpad for attacks into Central Asia in time. Brief Arab raids across the Amudarya into the Silk Road city-states of Sogdiana also began during Muawiyah's reign and some of the local Sogdian city-states came under the overlordship of the Arabs. But then, the Second Fitna put a stop to Arab advances. As the more brutal and longer-lasting Second Fitna racked the new Arab state, it was not capable of advancing further, and it even lost some of the advances that it had made. The attentions of its armies were drawn inward. Troops were needed to fight for the throne, fight for who would be the new commander of the faithful, and they could not be spared to invade Central Asia. Additionally, the chaos of the Second Fitna was particularly felt in the far east of the Arab domains, that is in Khorasan and Balkh, 
modern-day eastern Iran, Afghanistan, and Turkmenistan. These were the areas that directly bordered Central Asia, and were also areas where none of the factions had overwhelming support, and where local Arab generals held the real power. Arab authority was also relatively weak here, on the newly conquered fringes of the empire. So while this part of the new Islamic empire was not as soaked in the blood of fitna, it was far more politically fragmented than the central lands of the caliphate. All of this came to an end with the end of the second fitna. As the dust of the civil war settled, the triumphant Umayyads under Abd al-Malik were able to consolidate their rule over northeastern Iran and gazed across the Amudarya. Somehow, the invincible Arab war machine was ready to go back on the march after decades of fitna. The first concerted effort to cross the Amudarya and conquer Central Asia began under the reign of Abd al-Malik's son, the Caliph Walid. Walid, in part to solidify his rule and the legitimacy of his dynasty, was an expansionist caliph. He sent the armies of Islam into Spain, across the Caucasus into the land of the Khazars in southern Russia, into the Indus Valley, into Anatolia against the Romans, and critically for our story, across the Amudarya, that is the River Oxus, into Central Asia. The march across the river would be led by the general Kutaiba. Now this isn't the first time we've actually mentioned Kutaiba. At the end of last episode, I said that Abd al-Malik's lack of cruelty, his desire to forgive and co-opt his enemies, not torture them to death like his predecessors, was actually his greatest strength. And I said that he even assured the last Subaira generals as they lay dying that he would treat their children fairly, and that one of those generals' sons would go on to be a great Umayyad general. Well, that son is Kutaiba ibn Muslim, the man who would lead the first Muslim invasions into Central Asia. Qutayba ibn Muslim was born in Basra in 669 into a prominent family in an unprominent and uninfluential Arab tribe that had originally hailed from the Najd, the desolate deserts of the center of Arabia. His father had been an Umayyad supporter, but then defected to the Zubayrids. He was killed at the Battle of Maskin, where Abd al-Malik promised to treat Qutayba fairly. Kutaiba then rose in the Umayyad service, demonstrating himself to be a brave and capable soldier and administrator, albeit clearly a stern man with a streak of cruelty. He participated in the Umayyad suppression of a short-lived revolt against Abd al-Malik in Iraq, which brought him to the attention of the higher reaches of the caliphate. In 704, Kutaiba was appointed to become governor of Khorasan by the overall governor of Iraq in the east. This appointment was made both to demonstrate that the old days of fitna were over. I mean, here was a son of one of Ibn al-Zubayr's own general, now serving the Umayyads, and to find an appointee who was not a member of one of the rival tribes then competing for influence at court. In other words, to find an outsider. Kutaiba set himself up in Khorasan as the governor of Khorasan and Balkh, those lands of modern-day northeastern Iran, Turkmenistan, and Afghanistan south of the Amudarya. But he quickly began to send armies and emissaries north across the river into the swirling chaos of Central Asia. Quickly, the local bickering petty kings of the Sogdian city-states saw that these new Arab armies next door across the river were a potential ally in their struggles with each other. So instead of uniting against Kutaiba and his forces, these local kings began sending petitions to Kutaiba, asking for aid against their neighbors down the road or against their own internal rivals. For example, the king of the oasis city-state of Khwarezm near the Aral Sea promised to pay tribute to the Arabs if Kutaiba would get rid of his younger brother, who was then in open revolt. And the ruler of Changyan near present-day Dushanbe in Tajikistan invited Kutaiba's forces in to help him defeat his rivals in cities a mere day's ride from his capital. Kutaiba was quick to agree to as many of these requests as he could, seeing he could play these petty Sogdian kings off each other and thus entrench Arab power in the region across the river. A side effect of this process was that tribute that the city-states used to pay as protection money to the Turks was now going to the Arabs, you know, foreshadowing a little bit of future conflict here. As his influence spread across these petty city-states in Sogdiana across the river, as his rule over Khorasan and Balkh became entrenched, Kutaiba began to prepare for an invasion to conquer the larger city-states in Sogdiana. In doing this, he would rely not only on the Arab armies of Islam, but on his new allies in Sogdiana, those petty kings now bound to him for the services he had rendered to them. 
as Gurak, the king of Samarkand, would come to say to him, You are fighting me with my own brothers and my own people. In 706, Kutaiba's armies crossed the Amudarya and, together with their Sogdian allies, captured the city of Paikand. In 709, they advanced further and conquered the great city of Bukhara, and in 712, they conquered the even greater city of Samarkand, the most magnificent and largest city of Transoxiana. Now, these cities all lay in a relatively straight line up the Zarafshan River, but none of these conquests were easy. The Arabs faced fierce resistance, and the cities did not stay conquered. When Paikand rebelled and had to be reconquered, Kutaiba showed his sternness and streak of cruelty. To make an example of the city, he had the walls demolished and all fighting-aged men executed. We have a fantastic description of the capture of Samarkand in a letter sent by King Gurak to the Tang court, begging for aid against these new invaders. He wrote, For thirty-five years we have been battling constantly against the Arab brigands. Every year we have sent on campaigns great armies of soldiers and cavalrymen without having had the good fortune to receive any military aid from the imperial majesty. Six years ago, the chief general of the Arabs, the Emir Kutaiba, came here with a huge army. He fought against us, and we suffered a great defeat at the hands of our enemies, and many of our men were killed or wounded. Since the infantry and the cavalry of these Arabs were numerous, and our forces could not resist them, I withdrew into the fortress to protect myself. The Arabs then besieged the city. They set three hundred catapults against the walls and breached them in three places. They wanted to destroy our kingdom and our city. I humbly request that the Imperial Majesty, being now informed, dispatched here a contingent of Chinese soldiers to help me in these difficult times. But from the Arabs' perspective, the East was not entirely pacified, even south of the Amudarya. In 709 through 710, a local Hephthalite ruler led a revolt against Arab rule in Balkh, centered around the city of Herat. Remember the Hephthalites from all the way back in episode 2? Well, like I said then, even though they were never again rulers of the steppe after the Turks had defeated them, there were still Hephthalite-descended kingdoms in Balkh for centuries. And though the Arabs had conquered them, they were not entirely submissive at this time. Kutaiba brutally put down this particular revolt in under a year. Fresh off these successes, Kutaiba then began to prepare for a massive push further north of the Amudarya. In 713, Kutaiba assembled a massive army, supported by at least 20,000 local Sogdian troops, to conquer the Fergana Valley north of the Amudarya, one of the richest regions in Transoxiana. Though the sources are confused and scarce, the Arabs were clearly successful. They defeated the local Sogdians near Hujand, and even sent the first Arab emissaries to the Tang court to discuss the division of the lands of Central Asia. And as we discussed in episode 8, it was also in 713 that Kutaiba crushed an expeditionary force led by Tonyukuk and sent by the second Turkish Khanate into Sogdiana to aid one of their Sogdian allies. Outside the walls of Samarkand, the armies of Islam led by Kutaiba crushed the armies of the second Turkish Khanate led by Tarkhan Tonyukuk. It was a total rout, the worst defeat suffered by Turkish arms since the Tang destruction of the Western Khanate. Chastened, the Second Khanate largely gave up on Central Asia. So Kutaiba had basically run the board. Not only had he crushed revolts in Khorasan and Balkh against Arab rule, but he had conquered many of the great Silk Road cities north of the Amudarya and bound countless other small city-states closer to the river. And he had also defeated the armies of the Second Turkish Khanate, a powerful and mighty steppe state. The authority of the Arabs across Central Asia was unquestioned. A Korean Buddhist monk, traveling on pilgrimage to India, gives an account of the spread of Arab power across the region, saying, From Bamyan I traveled north for twenty days. There I came upon the country of Tokharistan, whose capital is Paktra. At present, the whole place is guarded and oppressed by the Arabs. The original king was forced to leave the capital, and he resided at Badakhshan, which is one month's journey to the east. It, too, is now under the rule of the Arabs. But then, in 715, while he was on campaign marching towards Fergana to finally conquer it from the vassals of the Tang who ruled there, news came to Kutaiba that the Caliph Walid, son of Abd al-Malik, had died. Suleiman, another son of Abd al-Malik, succeeded him as Caliph. Suleiman had been a bitter rival of Kutaiba, 
and Qutaiba naturally feared that he would be replaced, or worse. He sent emissaries off to Suleiman, trying to come to an accord, but these failed to come to a satisfactory agreement upon which Qutaiba revolted. He hoped to rely on his base of support among the Arabs who had settled in Khorasan and Balkh, Arab settlers who, like him, were descendants of lesser-ranking tribes within the Caliphate, people who did not receive the great estates of Mesopotamia, but set out to the frontiers of Iran to settle. Qutaiba also had support among his local allies and the newly converted local Sogdian and other Iranic peoples, those who had allied with the Muslim armies before adopting their religion, though at the time the number of such non-Arab Muslims was not very large. Unfortunately, Qutaiba was not able to marshal these forces and his rebellion failed. He was killed in 716 by his own Arab soldiers, a truly sad end for such a great general. But Qutaiba's failed rebellion was to be a foreshadowing, a prophecy of a sort. In time, the Abbasid revolution that will overthrow the Umayyads will be born from the people he tried to rally to his side, the Khorasani Arab settlers and local Iranian and Turkish converts. After Qutaiba's death, the Arab push further into Central Asia largely stalled out for about five years. The new caliph Suleiman was focused on defeating the Byzantines and conquering Constantinople, but he failed miserably. His armies put the great city to siege again in 717 to 718, which was again unsuccessful. He died while the siege was ongoing and was succeeded as caliph by his cousin, Umar II, who was a son of Abd al-Malik's younger brother. Umar not only saw clearly that Constantinople was not capable of being conquered, but feared that continued Arab advances across the world may be stretching the capabilities of the state. He was wary of further advances, wary of potential revolts like Qutaiba's and others, and in general, preferred to consolidate Arab rule rather than continue to push forward. So under his rule, which would last until 720, the Arab armies on all fronts, including Central Asia, pulled back. In this lull, the Sogdian city-states sensed that their opportunity to break free of Arab hegemony had come. So they again sent messengers off to the Tang, to the Second Turkish Khanate, and to the Turgesh, begging for aid. I already read the message of King Gurak of Samarkand to the Tang, but his was not the only such message. The king of Bukhara sent an emissary to the Tang, pleading, Every year we have suffered the incursions and the ravages of the Arab brigands, and our country has enjoyed no respite. These Sogdian messengers found willing ears in the court of the Turgesh, because in 716, the same year that Qutaiba died, a new Khan had come to power in the Turgesh Khanate. And it is now time to welcome onto the stage our main character for the next couple episodes the man who would lead the Turkish war against the armies of Islam, the great and unfortunately largely forgotten Suluk Khan. Now, as we already discussed, after their defeat at the hands of the second Turkish Khanate at the Battle of Bolchu in 714, the Turgesh had submitted to the second Turkish Khanate. As the Bilge Khan inscriptions say of the Battle of Bolchu, the Turgesh Khan's army came up by the Bolchu like fire and storm, and we fought. Kultegin attacked riding on the grey horse Bashku. Then we slew the Khan and took over his kingdom. The whole of the common Turgesh people submitted. Having submitted to the second Khanate, the Turgesh briefly came under the rule of Ashna Zian, a member of the old royal family of the first Khanate. With the support of the Tang and the second Turkish Khanate, Ashna Zian occupied Suyab, that Silk Road city close to the Turgesh heartlands that was slowly coming to serve as something like a capital. With him came a Tang garrison to support the new Khan. But he did not have universal support, and resentment of their eastern cousins in the second Khanate still burned among many of the western Turks. This resentment was harnessed by a certain Turgesh leader of the Black Turgesh, bearing the title Chur, named Suluk. Now, Suluk is going to go down in history as one of the greatest Turkish leaders, the last great pre-Islamic Turkish leader. We know almost nothing about his early life, other than that he was born into a noble family, but one of very, very low rank. Suluk had served as essentially a junior officer under Suogi at the Battle of Bolchu, where the Second Khanate had crushed the Turgesh. After this defeat, he was likely chosen in a kurultai of the Turgesh to serve as Chur 
which seems to mean something like a shod or a governor. The Book of Tang says Suluk was a diligent and moderate man who loved and governed his people well. As we will come to see, Suluk was more than just diligent and moderate. He was a brilliant military strategist and a cunning politician. In 715, a mere one year into Ashna Zian's reign, Suluk sent messengers to the Tang court, asking for recognition as Khan in a bid to challenge Ashna Zian, but received only very minor titles, namely, Great General of the Left Wing of the Forestrial Army and Grand Military Commissioner of Jin Fang. Now, those sound pretty good to me. I mean, I would love to be the Great General of the Left Wing of the Forestrial Army, but from Suluk's perspective, this is not the title Khan. Likely, the Tang granted these titles as part of their divide and rule policy as the rift between Ashna Zian and Suluk continued to grow. As part of his attempt to sideline Ashna Zian and assert his rule and his independence, it was also in 715 that Suluk led a large portion of the Turgesh into revolt against the Second Khanate, their overlords and the supporters of Ashna Zian. Along with the Karluks, the Kyrgyz, and other western Turkish tribes, the Turgesh rose up in revolt against the Second Khanate to the east. The Turgesh, led by Suluk, led an ambush for Kapagan Khan and succeeded in killing him. This victory further sidelined his rival Ashna Zian by allowing him to be the leader to assert the independence of the Turgesh. The vassalage to the Second Khanate was over. The defeat at Bulchu avenged. The Turgesh were again free and independent. A year later, in 716, with internal chaos and civil war racking the second Turkish Khanate following Kapagan Khan's death, and with the independence of the Turgesh achieved, Suluk felt that the time had come. There was no way that the second Khanate would be able to come to the usurper Ashnazian's aid. So Suluk declared himself Khan and deposed Ashnazian, who fled to the Tang. Though our sources are muddled, it appears that Suluk, after declaring himself Khan, again defeated the Second Khanate's forces in battle to keep his title and reassert the independence of the Turgesh. Through these battles, these struggles against the great Second Khanate, Suluk established the primacy of the Turgesh in the lands west of the Tian Shan Mountains. Rising from his relatively low status, Suluk was now the supreme ruler of these lands, the Khan of all of the old heartland of the dead western Gökturk Khanate. So what was his rule like? Though in time he would become an innovative reformer, Suluk started his career as Khan as a traditional steppe ruler, and he maintained his rule in the traditional manner of steppe chieftains, by spreading widely the fruits of raiding and conquest. The Book of Tang says, Every time he campaigned, he distributed among his generals, officers, and members of his hordes all the booty he had taken. His subjects loved him, and were entirely at his service. But though he was now the uncontested leader of the Turgesh, Suluk still did not have Tang recognition, which was always a critical stamp of legitimation in the steppe world. Suluk sent tribute missions to the Tang court asking for recognition, but the Tang were not prepared to grant it. They still hoped that Ashna Zian could be restored. So Suluk secretly began preparing for war. At the same time his messengers were heading to the Tang court, Suluk sent other messengers south to the kingdom of Tibet, which itself had emerged during the collapse of the Gökturk state. Suluk and the king of Tibet agreed to an alliance, and Suluk took one of the king's many daughters as his bride, a key mark of legitimacy for a man without royal blood. It was likely around this time that Suluk acquired a dazzling and magnificent Tibetan war helmet that he would wear throughout his career. Following the establishment of this alliance, in 717, the Tibetans and the Turgesh launched a surprise attack into the Tarim Basin with Umayyad assistance. The Umayyads joined up after having tangled with Tang troops in Kutaiba's last campaign, during which the Tang troops had badly defeated the Umayyads. The Turgesh hordes flooded south over the Tian Shan as the Tibetans marched north from the Tibetan plateau and Umayyad contingents rushed in from the west. They laid siege to the cities of Aksu and Uch-Turfan, but were not able to take them. The Tang forces rallied their Karluk allies, put under the command of Ashnazian, and drove the Turgesh, the Tibetans, and the Arabs away from the walls of the cities. But the Tang attack did not really defeat the Arab, Tibetan, or Turgesh troops in the fields or capture Suluk. They had merely forced Suluk to call off his siege. And remember, 
Suluk's aim here is not really to start a big war with the Tang. For now, he had no interest in ruling the Tang side of the Tian Shan. He just wanted them to recognize his rule on the other side of the mountains and stop supporting Ashnazian. Finally, in 719, Suluk was able to drive the Tang garrison out of Suyap. Recognizing that the game was now over, the Tang recognized Suluk's rule of the Turgesh. Suluk now had the all-important legitimation as Khan by being recognized by the Chinese emperor. But Suluk had done more than just take control of the Turgesh Khanate. He had expanded the young Khanate's power and influence. The defeat at the hands of the second Khanate in 714 was now firmly in the past. No longer were the Turgesh merely the subjects of their powerful eastern cousins. They were recognized as a true power in the region. Soon all of the tribes west of the Tian Shan and east of the Caspian Sea, the Karluks, the Basmil, and the Kyrgyz bent the knee. Not only was Suluk recognized as Khan by the Tang, but in 722, the Tang sent to him a bride, an Ashina princess, who had been living in the Tang court. And not just any Ashina princess, a princess from the line of Ishtami, the line of the Yabgu, who had essentially founded the old western Khanate, whose lands and peoples the Turgesh now ruled. For Suluk, who was not of a high-ranking lineage or related to any royal house, this was an incredible mark of prestige. He was now related to the Ashina, who 175 years after the foundation of the first Turkish Khanate, had the bluest blood on the steppe. It was also probably around this time that Khosrau IV, the grandson of the last Sassanid Shah Yazdegerd III, left the Tang court and joined Suluk's retinue, hoping that the Turgesh would help him regain the throne of Iran. With his rule now secured and legitimized by the Tang, and victory over the Second Khanate in the field, with the defeat at the Battle of Bolchu avenged, Suluk felt that the eastern flank of the Turgesh Khanate was now secured. And so, in 720, Suluk's attention began turning west and south, towards the Sogdian city-states who had been desperately sending him messages asking for aid, and to these newly arrived Arabs, who brought with them this strange new religion. Suluk saw these city-states, the Sogdian Silk Road cities of Transoxiana, as the traditional vassals of the Turks, and believed that he was their rightful overlord. These cities were now paying tribute to the Arabs instead of to him. Additionally, the poor showing of the Umayyad contingent at the Battle of Aksu left him with a bitter aftertaste in his mouth. These were the vaunted armies of Islam? These were the guys who now ruled the people who were rightfully his subjects and vassals? And so it was that Suluk Khan sent word to his Sogdian allies that the Turgesh were assembling for war. After decades of weakness of the Western Turks, the Turgesh were back. The Khan was coming to claim what was rightfully his. Thus began the Great War, the war between the Umayyads and the Turgesh, a war that would continue for almost twenty years, though waxing and waning year by year, a war of horses and camels, of arrows and spears, of steppe riders and desert warriors, of cunning ambushes and desperate last stands, a war that would ultimately, in its own way, remake the Islamic world, and change the course of Turkish history forever. Led by Suluk, the Turgesh hordes marched south towards the great city of Samarkand in 720. In concert, various Sogdian city-states and factions within city-states began rising up to aid the Turgesh and overthrow the Arabs. Northeast of Samarkand, the Turgesh armies met an Arab contingent. This small army was one of the very few Arab armies in the region north of the Amudarya. As we discussed earlier, the new Umayyad Caliph Umar, after seeing Arab arms fail before the walls of Constantinople a second time, had pulled back from the wars in the frontiers, including in Central Asia. Suluk's army crushed this Arab contingent, utterly routing them. His conviction that the armies of Islam were completely overrated was no doubt strengthened. Suluk was then able to surround the Arab fortress of Qasl al-Bahili. The Arab troops were stuck inside, along with their families. Desperately, the Arab governor of the region in Samarkand ordered a relief force to be sent. The commander dismissed all troops who were not brave, telling them to steal themselves as they were to enter the arena of the Turks, the arena of the Khan. The Arab army rode forth from Samarkand and, 
upon reaching Qasr al-Bahili, launched an attack on the besieging Turgesh army. An Arab eyewitness in the fortress, watching this great battle from the walls of the besieged castle, wrote, When the two armies engaged in battle, we thought the day of resurrection had arrived on account of what we heard, namely, the groans emitted by the soldiers, the clashing of iron, and the neighing of the horse. The Arab army was able to force Suluk to lift the siege, but this was a hollow victory. Suluk was not driven from Transoxiana. The Arabs were only able to rescue one of their cornered forces and drag them to safety in Samarkand. Outside of the cities, Suluk Khan had the run of the land north of the Amudarya. With this victory by the Turgesh, Arab hegemony north of the Amudarya began to melt away. Seeing the strength of Suluk, those Sogdian city-states and factions opposed to the Arabs were emboldened. Suluk himself remained in Sogdiana. He spent 721 raiding the areas near Samarkand and then spent 722 in the Fergana Valley. As Suluk rode across Transoxiana, whole cities rose up in revolt against the Arabs. In particular, a certain local Sogdian king named Dewashtich, the Zoroastrian ruler of Panjikent near Samarkand, even managed to seize control of Samarkand from King Gurak, who was by now an Arab ally. The Arabs were driven away completely from Transoxiana. But just as this was happening, thousands of miles away in Syria, Caliph Umar II died in 720. Remember that under his rule, the Caliphate had retrenched and pulled back from conquest on the frontiers. Well, no longer. His successor, Yazid II, was yet another son of the great Abd al-Malik, and he was far less cautious than his cousin Umar had been. Again, the Caliphate began to arm itself as the great Arab war machine came back to life. In response to this great rebellion in Central Asia and the attacks of the Turgesh led by Suluk, the new caliph appointed the implacable and ruthless Said al-Harashi as governor of Khorasan with a mandate to reassert Arab control over Sogdiana and to conquer even further. Dewashtich's rebellion was brutally crushed. Al-Harashi burned parts of Panjikant and destroyed the Zoroastrian temple there. Then, despite Al-Harashi's promises of lenience, Dewashtich himself was crucified on the Zoroastrian Tower of Silence, those great buildings where the Zoroastrians leave their dead to be consumed by ravens and crows so as not to pollute fire, water, or earth with death. His head was sent back to Iraq as a sign from Al-Harashi that the revolt in Sogdiana was over. But Al-Harashi's brutality prompted a backlash, both in Sogdiana and back at the Umayyad capital of Damascus. Many in the Umayyad court were horrified at the extent of the bloodletting and the sadism of Al-Harashi in putting down the revolt. In particular, crucifying and then sending the severed head of a prince to whom you had promised a leniency was seen as cruel and barbaric. Additionally, Al-Harashi had strictly enforced the jizya tax in the conquered lands of Khorasan and Sagdiana, that is a head tax on all non-Muslims. In return for payment of the jizya, the non-Muslims were to be tolerated and protected by the state. But while the jizya certainly had a history in all of the lands conquered by the armies of Islam, it was usually not strictly applied. The caliphs feared that too strict of an application would lead to revolts, and as such it would either be selectively imposed or selectively enforced. Additionally, remember that at this time, conversion to Islam by non-Arab conquered peoples was still not the norm. As we will discuss in a couple episodes, while limited conversion of non-Arabs was occurring, Islam had started out as the faith of the conquering Arabs, who were not overly keen on bringing in new members, who would then be invited to share the fruits of conquest. Being overly strict with the jizya would encourage conversions into the faith by subject non-Muslim peoples, which the Umayyads wanted to avoid and for good reason, as we will soon see. But al-Harashi was intent upon the full application of the jizya, intent upon punishing the Sogdian rebels and extracting as much as he could from them. Partially, this is because the Umayyad court was not overly generous, and al-Harashi was expected to finance these invasions himself. But predictably, in response to his heavy-handed treatment of Dewashtich and his high and oppressive taxation, resistance to Arab rule and to al-Harashi in particular was growing in Khorasan and in the recently reconquered territories in Sogdiana, north of the Amudarya. As the situation became increasingly tense, the order came in from Damascus in late 722 that al-Harashi was being recalled. The Umayyads were concerned that his harshness was contributing to unrest and would spark a revolt. The new governor of Khorasan, dispatched by the court in Damascus, was Muslim Ibn Said al-Kilabi. 
Al-Kilabi was a member of a distinguished Umayyad family, whose grandfather had served as governor of Khorasan under Muawiyah shortly after the Arab conquest of Iran. When he was dispatched to be governor of Khorasan, Al-Kilabi was told to be conciliatory to the native population, especially those who had converted to Islam. Let your chamberlain be one of the best of your Mawali, that is a non-Arab convert to Islam, for he is your tongue and your spokesman. Al-Kilabi took this instruction to heart, and upon arriving in Khorasan, he made sure to lighten the tax burden and to appoint officials who would be acceptable to the local peoples, including Zoroastrians and Buddhists. But Al-Kilabi knew that he also had a duty to expand the frontiers of the caliphate, and so after spending a year in Khorasan calming the situation and ensuring that Arab rule was entrenched south of the Amudarya, in early 724, Al-Kilabi assembled a great army to invade north to finally conquer the Fergana Valley and bring an end to any resistance to the Arabs in Sogdiana north of the river, to subdue the whole region in preparation for an assault on the Tang. His army included not just Arab forces, but local Sogdians loyal to the Arabs. The army moved to Samarkand, where King Gurak and his forces joined them, before marching to Khujant, the city that sits on the very western edge of the great Fergana Valley. But Al-Kalabi was not the only commander moving his armies toward the Fergana Valley in the spring of 724. After hearing of the defeat of his vassal Dewashtich and the crushing of the Sogdian revolt by Al-Harashi, and upon hearing pleas for aid by the king of Kutal in what is today the southern border between Tajikistan and Afghanistan, Suluk Khan knew that he had to respond. He couldn't sit back and allow the Arabs to encroach into what he considered to be his territory the land of his vassals, who had been vassals of the Turks since the days of Ishtami Khan over 150 years ago. And upon hearing that Al-Kalabi was marching from Khorasan north and east across the Amudarya and towards the Fergana Valley, Suluk assembled a great horde and marched south through the mountains of Kyrgyzstan to enter the Fergana Valley at its northeastern edge. There, Suluk prepared his trap. See, the Fergana Valley is like a bowl. If you haven't been there, it's a truly remarkable place. The great snow-capped mountains rise on all sides of a vast and completely flat plain, speckled with some of the oldest cities in the world. When you're in the middle of the valley, it is so wide that you can't even see the mountains that surround you. And it is baking hot in the summer. It never rains. I personally traveled across the valley in August, hitchhiking in an unair-conditioned Lada, and I can tell you from personal experience that it is one of the hottest places you will ever go to. The only source of water is the river Sirdaria, also called the River Jaxartes by the Western sources. And Suluk knew just how terrible the heat could be to a marching army, and how they could be trapped by their own thirst if cut off from the sole source of life-giving water. So after Al-Kalabi entered into the Fergana Valley, his scouts reported the presence of a small contingent of Turkish troops nearby. He sent out orders, and the Arab armies quickly mustered and pursued the Turks for almost three days, the fleeing Turks always just out of range. On the third day, the armies entered into a small valley, which the Arab sources call Wadi al-Subuh. There, Suluk sprung his trap. Because of course, the seeming retreat of the Turks had been nothing but the classic step tactic of the feigned retreat an attempt to draw their enemies into this very valley, picked by Suluk, and prepared for their destruction. As the Arabs chased the fleeing Turks, Suluk and his army suddenly appeared before them, and then, just as suddenly, the Turkish troops who had been hiding in the hills sprung out and surrounded them. The Arabs looked up to see Turkish troops on the horizon in all directions. Suluk swiftly ordered an attack on the Arab army's rear to capture their baggage train and supplies. The history of Al-Tabari, the greatest and most important, most thorough early Islamic history, says, The Khan drew near them as the horsemen rallied to him from all directions. At this, Abdullah ibn Abi Abdullah had a group of lesser tribal commanders and clients set up camp. The Turks attacked those whom Abdullah had stationed at that place, and killed them while seizing the pack animals belonging to Al-Kalabi. The Turks had managed to kill a great many Arab and client Sogdian commanders and nobles in this first attack, including the brother of King Gurak of Samarkand. More importantly, they had taken a great deal of the Arab supplies, 
and all of their pack animals to carry them. Al-Kalabi was stunned, and he knew that he had no good options. The Arab army was now stuck in the baking heat of the Fergana Valley as summer was approaching, low on supplies, and without any way to carry what they still had left out. There was no question of continuing the campaign, and attacking Suluk Khan was also clearly impossible. The Turks had the high ground in all directions. So Al-Kalabi handed the banner of the army over to a senior officer, ordering him to return to Khorasan with it so at least the banner of the Muslims would not fall into infidel hands. He then summoned a council of his commanders to figure out what to do. They all agreed. There was no choice but to try to go back to Hujant. Slowly, the Arab army turned around and began to ponderously march back the way they had come. But Suluk and the Turks were not going to let them go easily. They kept the Arabs surrounded, harrying the edges of the army, picking off stragglers as the Arab army began to slowly drag itself back towards Khujant. The march to the battlefield had taken three days. The march back would take eight, marching both day and night. The Arabs had lost most of their baggage train, and so the troops were left with only the food and water they had on them. Because almost all of the pack animals had been seized by the Turks, the Arab soldiers had to carry on their own backs what was left in the baking heat. Supplies began to run out, and soldiers began collapsing from exhaustion, hunger, and thirst. For the entirety of this slow march, the Turks harassed the retreating Arabs, keeping the army surrounded, indeed herding it, like they herded their flocks. The Arabs were unable to search for food and water. It is from this that the Arabs gave this great retreat, the first great defeat at the hands of the Turks its name. They called it the Day of Thirst. By the ninth evening, as they approached the river Sirdaria, the only river in the valley, the Arab army needed to rest. Al-Kalabi consulted with his commanders who advised him to camp. They said, In the morning we will go straight to the water, which is not far away. But if you camp in the meadow, the men will split up foraging for fruit and your camp will be surrounded and plundered by the Turks. So Al-Kalabi ordered a camp to be built for the night. In the morning, though, the men burned the remainder of their baggage, unwilling to carry such heavy burdens any further with no food or water. Al-Tabari says the value of what was burned was over one million dirhams, an immense sum. The Arab army then left the camp in order to finally reach the water. But as they approached the river, they saw arranged before them the armies of the Turks' Sogdian allies and vassals, blocking them from the river. Suluk, by surrounding the Arab army and dictating its line of retreat, had essentially maneuvered the Arab retreat where he wanted it to go towards this particular river crossing where he had ordered his Sogdian allies and vassals to assemble. Suluk had led the Arabs from the first trap to this second trap. He must have smiled with glee seeing his plans work out to a T. The Arabs now yet again at his mercy. He must have wondered that these, of all people, were the mighty armies of Islam that had reportedly conquered the world. Al-Kalabi and the Arabs warily stared at the armies on the banks. Al-Kalabi knew he had to try to force his way through, so he desperately ordered the men to prepare for battle. According to Al-Tabari, he said, I urge every man to unsheath the sword, and so they did, the whole place becoming swords. Suluk Khan then pulled his armies back and allowed the Arabs to cross the river at a certain crossing, whereupon the Arabs rushed forward and eagerly filled what waterskins they had with them. But Suluk was not actually going to let the Arabs pass. He just wanted to get them into the perfect position to spring his second trap. As the Arab crossing became disordered by the parched men desperately drinking and filling their waterskins, the Turks and their Sogdian allies fell upon the Arabs. The Arab army broke and was routed. Almost all of the army was destroyed but the Arab rearguard was able to fight off the Turkish attack to save the army from total destruction. In this desperate rearguard action, the commander of the Arab rearguard himself died from a Turkish arrow wound. Only a small portion of the Arab army had survived, and it now dragged itself, broken, closer to Khujand. As Al-Tabari says, the men thirsted. Abd al-Rahman was carrying twenty waterskins on his camels, and when he saw how the men suffered, he brought them forth, and they drank a swallow. 
also Al-Kalabi asked for water on the day of thirst. They also brought him a vessel, but in anger a soldier grabbed it away from his mouth. When the defeated Arab army finally straggled back to Khujand, the few remaining troops could not be contained, and they ravaged the city, the city of their own allies. Al-Tabari says, struggling from hunger and exhaustion, the troops spread out in disorder. The Day of Thirst was a catastrophe for the Umayyads. Suluk had not only humiliated them, but the news of the defeat spread throughout Sogdiana and beyond, and shattered the myth of Arab invincibility. In an age that had become accustomed to the conquest of the armies of Islam, it was a great and notable defeat. The prestige of the Turgesh rose immeasurably, and the name Suluk came to be spoken on lips from China to India to Syria to Byzantium. Everyone now knew that the seemingly invincible armies of Islam could be beaten, by the Turks at least. And for this reason, the caliphs in Damascus and the governors in Khorasan knew they could not let this stand. The Turks had to be defeated. As a result of this great disaster, Al-Khalabi was soon replaced as governor. Upon hearing the news, he dejectedly said, I heed it and obey. Transoxiana, the land across the Amudarya, would now become the battlefield in the great war between the Turgesh Khanate led by Suluk and the Umayyad Caliphate. And it was also after the Day of Thirst that Suluk acquired a new nickname given to him by his Arab opponents. The Arabs named him Abu Muzahim, which means the father of the fight. And next time, we will discuss the next stage of that fight, what was destined to be the final fight of the Turks against the armies of Islam. 